Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, the podcast where we do things awesomely. We're talking about Book 3, Chapter 12. The discussion prompt of these, what are your feelings about the army's progression towards this seemingly ill-advised battle? Do you agree that that military action is a machine that can't be stopped once it is started, or could something have been done to change the course of this action? Uh, Any thoughts on Andre's self-reflection at the end? What did you make of his sentiments that his family are the most important thing to him? Acoustic Eels said, Kutuzov sounds like the smartest person in the room. At a certain point, further strategizing becomes less useful than getting a good night's sleep. As a pianist, hence my early pianos as furniture rant, I sometimes find myself in the situation that I have a performance the next day and my piece is not quite ready. It's almost always better to go to bed and wake up while rested than to stay up late practicing. You aren't really going to learn anything more at that point and your performance will suffer because you're tired. Do your preparations in advance. My recital is in two months and I'm scrambling to get all my music prepared. Lol. Well, good luck to you with that. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Uh, Icar 100 said, Didn't Andre say he would sacrifice everything for glory and triumph? Seems that way... Seems that way in the last line, too. I can't get myself to dislike him, even when he says things like this. He's very charismatic, and maybe that has won me over. Uh, yeah. He is charismatic. I would agree with that. Ripster66 says, The War Council seemed a bit of a joke. No real feedback sought or given. The cogs of war are turning, and it seems inevitable this attack will fail. Loopholes are ignored, and everyone seems resigned to the complicated battle plan that doesn't seem to have a lot of flexibility should Napoleon's troops do something unexpected. Prince Andre is being completely honest with himself as he faces this upcoming battle and his own mortality. He is, I think, surprised to realise he would give up the love and comfort of his family for the honour and praise he could get from his fellow soldiers in arms. Unlike Rostov, who feels a more simplistic idolising of his sovereign, Andre is craving the recognition of leadership and bravery from his fellow men. He is finding more purpose in his life than he did in his home life. He is more mature than Rostov, more likely to be introspective, and more honest with himself as well. Um, I thought I, The thing I liked about this chapter was, and we've had this before, before um, battles, as battles approach, uh, is the way that Tolstoy really gives you that sense of something big looming in the near future, this anticipation of a big battle. Uh, he does such a good job. Now, I'm going to read you the next chapter. I managed to do about three quarters of a paragraph in translation. Um, and so I guess I'll read you the first three quarters of a paragraph in my version, and then we'll switch to Maud works for me. Chapter 13 goes like this. That same night Rostov was with his with a platoon on skirmishing duty in front of Bagration's detachment. His hussars were scattered along the line in twos and Rostov himself rode along the line trying to overcome the waves of sleepiness crashing over him. There was tons of empty space behind him, nothing there but the amber of our army's campfires in the fog. In front of him was misty darkness. Rostov could see bugger all, try as he might to penetrate the foggy distance. Now something flashed grey, now there was something vaguely black, now little lights twinkled roughly where the enemy should be. 
Now he fancied it was just his eyes playing tricks on him. His eyes kept closing, and in his imagination appeared now the Emperor, now Denisov, and now snippets of Moscow life, and he quickly snapped his eyes open again and saw, right in front of him, the head and ears of the horse he was riding. And sometimes, when he came within six paces of them, the black figures of hussars, uh, but in the distance, there was still just... Sorry. He saw the black figures of the hussars, but in the distance, there was still just the darkness and the mist. Alright, that's as far as I got, so I'm switching to Maud. Why not? It might easily happen, thought Rostov, that the Emperor will meet me and give me an order as he would to any other officer. He'll say, go and find out what's there. There are many stories of his getting to know an officer in just such a chance way and attaching him to himself. What if he gave me a place near him? Oh, how I would guard him, how I would tell him the truth, how I would unmask his deceivers. And in order to realise vividly his love, devotion to the sovereign, Rostov pictured to himself an enemy, or a deceitful German, whom he would not only kill with pleasure, but whom he would slap in the face before the emperor. Suddenly a distant shout aroused him. He, stared, he started and opened his eyes. Where am I? Oh yes, in the skirmishing line. Pass and watchward. Shaft, Olmutz. What a nuisance that our squadron will be in the reserve tomorrow, he thought. I'll ask leave to go to the front. This may be my only chance of seeing the Emperor. It won't be long now before I'm off duty. I'll take another turn, and when I get back, I'll go to the General and ask him. He readjusted himself in the saddle and touched up his horse to ride once more around the Hussars. It seemed to him that it was getting lighter. To the left he saw a sloping descent lit up and facing it a black knoll that seemed as steep as a wall. On this knoll, there was a white patch that Rostov could not at all make out. Was it a glade in the wood, lit up by the moon, or some unmelted snow, or some white houses? He even thought something moved on that white spot. I expect it's snow, that spot. A spot, untash, he thought. There now, it's not a tash. Natasha, sister, black eyes, Natasha. Won't she be surprised when I tell her I've seen the emperor? Natasha... Take my sabotage. Keep to the right, your honour. There are bushes here, came the voice of a hussar. Past whom Rostov was riding in the act of falling asleep. Rostov lifted his head that had sunk almost to his horse's mane and pulled up beside the hussar. He was succumbing to irresistible, youthful, childish drowsiness. But what was I thinking? I mustn't forget. How shall I speak to the emperor? No, that's not it. That's tomorrow. Oh, yes, Natasha. Sabotage. Sabre them whom? The hussars? Ah, the hussars with moustaches. Along the Tsvertskaya street rode the hussar with moustaches. I thought about him too, just opposite Guryev's house. Old Guryev. Ah, oh, but Denisov's a fine fellow. But that's all nonsense. The chief thing is that the emperor is here. How he looked at me and wished to say something but dared not. No, it was I who dared not, but that's nonsense. The chief thing is not to forget the important thing I was thinking of. Ah, yes, Natasha. Natasha. Sabotage. Ah, yes, yes, that's right. And his head once more sank to his horse's neck. All at once, it seemed to him, he was being fired at. What? 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 Cut them down. What? Said Rostov, waking up. At the moment he opened his eyes, he heard in front of him, where the enemy was, the long-drawn shouts of thousands of voices. His horse 
and the horse of the hussar near him pricked their ears at the shouts. Over there, where the shouting came from, a fire flared up and went out again, then another, and all along the French line on the hill, fires flared up, and the shouting grew louder and louder. Rostov could hear the sound of French words but could not distinguish them. The din of many voices was too great. All he could hear was ah ha 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 and err. What's that? What do you make of it? said Rostov to the hussar beside him. That must be the enemy's camp. The hussar did not reply. Why, don't you hear me? Rostov asked again after waiting for a reply. Who can tell, your honour? replied the hussar reluctantly. From the direction it must be the enemy, repeated Rostov. It may be he, or it may be nothing, muttered the hussar. It's dark. Steady, he cried to his fidgeting horse. Rostov's horse was also getting restive. It pawed the frozen ground, pricking its ears at the noise and looking at the lights. The shouting grew still louder and merged into a general roar that only an army of several thousand men could produce. The lights spread farther and farther, producing, probably, along the line of the French camp. Rostov no longer wanted to sleep. The gay triumphant shouting of the enemy army had a stimulating effect on him. Vive le empereur, le empereur, he now heard distinctly. They can't be far off, probably just beyond the stream, he said to the hussar beside him. The hussar only sighed without replying and coughed angrily. The sound of horses' hoofs approaching at a trot along the line of hussars was heard, and out of the foggy darkness the figure of a sergeant of hussars suddenly appeared, looming huge as an elephant. Your honour, the generals, said the sergeant, riding up to Rostov. Rostov, still looking round towards the fires and the shouts, rode with the sergeant to meet some mounted men who were riding along the line. One, one was on a white horse. Prince Bagration and Prince Dolgurikov, with their adjutants, had come to witness the curious phenomenon of the lights and shouts in the enemy's camp. Rostov rode up to Bagration, reported to him, and then joined the adjutants, listening to what the generals were saying. "'Believe me,' said Prince Dolgurikov, addressing Bagration, it is nothing but a trick. He has retreated and ordered the rearguard to kindle fires and make a noise to deceive us. Hardly, said Bagration. I saw them this evening on that knoll. If they had retreated, they would have withdrawn from that too. Officer, said Bagration to Rostov, are the enemy's skirmishers still there? They were there this evening, but now I don't know, Your Excellency. Shall I go with some of my hussars to see, replied Rostov. Bagration stopped and, before replying, tried to see Rostov's face in the mist. "'Well, go and see,' he said after a pause. "'Yes, sir.' Rostov spurred his horse, called to Sergeant Fedchenko and two other hussars, told them to follow him, and trotted downhill in the direction from which the shouting came. He felt both frightened and pleased to be riding alone with three hussars into that mysterious and dangerous misty distance where no one had been before him. Bagration called to him from the hill not to go beyond the stream, but Rostov pretended to not to hear him and did not stop but rode on and on, continually mistaking bushes for trees and gullies for men and continually discovering his mistakes. Having descended the hill at a trot, he no longer saw either our own or the enemy's fires, but heard the shouting of the French more loudly and distinctly. In the valley he saw before him something like a river, but when he reached it, he found it was a road. Having come out onto the road, he reined in his horse, hesitating whether to ride along it or cross it, and ride over the black field up to the hillside. To keep to the road which gleamed white in the mist would have been safer, because it would be easier to see people coming along it. Follow me, said he, crossing 
said he, crossed the road and began riding up the hill at a gallop toward the point where the French pickets had been standing that evening. Your Honour, there he is, cried one of the hussars behind him, and before Rostov had time to make out what the black thing was that had suddenly appeared in the fog, there was a flash, followed by a report, and a bullet whizzing high up in the mist with a plaintive sound passed out of hearing. Another mis musket missed fire but flashed in the pan. Rostov turned his horse and galloped back. Four more reports followed at intervals and the bullets passed somewhere in the fog singing in different tones. Rostov reined in his horse, whose spirits had risen, like his own, at the firing and went back at a footpace. Well, some more, some more, a merry voice was saying in his soul, but no more shots came. Only when approaching Bagration did Rostov let his horse gallop again, and with his hand at the salute rode up to the general. Dolgorokov was still insisting that the French had retreated and had only lit fires to deceive us. But what does that prove, he was saying to Rostov as he rode up. They might retreat and leave the pickets. It's plain that they have not all gone yet, Prince, said Bagration. Wait till morning tomorrow. We'll find out everything tomorrow. The picket is still on the hill, Your Excellency, just where it was in the evening, reported Rostov, stooping forward with his hand at the salute and unable to repress the smile of delight induced by his ride and his especially by the sound of the bullets. Very good, very good, said Bagration. Thank you, officer. Your Excellency, said Rostov, may I ask a favour? What is it? Tomorrow our squadron is to be in reserve. May I ask to be attached to the first squadron? What's your name? Count Rostov? Oh, very well. You may stay in attendance on me. Count Ilya Rostov's son? asked Dolgorokov. But Rostov did not reply. Then I may reckon on it, Your Excellency. I will give the order. Tomorrow very likely I may be sent with some message to the Emperor, said Lord Rostov. Thank God. The fires and shouting in the enemy's army were occasioned by the fact that while Napoleon's proclamation was being read to the troops, the Emperor himself rode around his bivouacs. The soldiers on seeing him lit wisps of straw and ran after him shouting, Viva le Emperor! Napoleon's proclamation was as follows. Soldiers, the Russian army is advancing against you to avenge the Austrian army of Ulm. They are the same battalions you broke at Hollebrunn and have pursued ever since to this place. The position we occupy is a strong one, and while they are marching to go round on the right, they will expose a flank to me. Soldiers, I will myself direct your battalions. I will keep out of fire if you, with your habitual valour, carry disorder and confusion into the enemy's ranks. But should victory be in doubt, even for a moment, you will see your emperor exposing himself to the first blows of the enemy, for there must be no doubt of victory, especially on this day, when what is at stake is the honour of the French infantry, so necessary to the honour of our nation. Do not break your ranks on the plea of removing the wounded. Let every man be fully imbued with the thought that we must defeat those hirelings of England, inspired by such hatred of our nature, nation. This victory will conclude our campaign and we can return to winter quarters where fresh French, French troops who are being raised in France will join us and the peace I shall conclude will be worthy of my people, of you and of myself, Napoleon. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. We're inching closer to this battle. Oh, it's going to be 
pretty full on, I think. All right, guys. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.